Hey, friends, this is John Johnson with the Alberta Spanish Institute. Larissa Bianco has the day off. I'm just kidding. She's right here watching me record this. But uh, while Larissa is gearing up for another great season of the Magnus podcast, now 50 or 60,000 downloads strong. Imagine that. We wanted to bring you something very special. Now, you see, it's been said that St. Bernard of Clairvaux uh, who died about a thousand years more than that after Christ is the last patristic, the last church father. The bold claim that I'm going to make to you today is that the last medieval schoolman is in his 90s and taught for years at, uh, at various universities from Drew to Xavier to St. Mary's College to the Dominican School of Philosophy and Theology and I think even DePaul at one point. Uh, He's a great teacher and a great man, and he's probably the world's foremost expert on St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, and others, and really a living master in our midst. He's entrusted his entire library to the Albertus Magnus Institute after a real life of hiddenness uh, that he prayed for. And he's now ready to allow us, with some encouragement, to publish his work. And we did publish his book, Sufferings and Glory of Christ, by Father Owen Carroll, available now on our website. And uh, and many people have enjoyed it. Many people have said great things about it, including the likes of Dr. Matthew Levering, Dr. Anthony Esselin, and others. You can buy it now. Hardbacks are available on the website, magnusinstitute.org, exclusively to our fellows. Softbacks can be found at Amazon, but it really will enrich your Lent and especially your Holy Week. So pick that up. In the meantime, I actually went to Father Carroll and I brought him an iPad. I brought him an iPad because he's such a teacher at heart that living in this retirement home with other religious somewhere in California, he's been getting together with these 90-year-olds and uh, 90-somethings, and a group of five or 10 of them have been studying the Summa and other things, and Father Carroll's been lecturing And with this iPad that I gave Father Carroll and taught him how to use after some time, he's been recording the lectures for us. And so we're going to be bringing them to you in rapid fire right here on the Magnus Podcast. And you can profit, enjoy, and if you love them, share. It's a slow burn, but I promise that uh, like learning any new language, you'll come to love it eventually. And and let us know what you think. I've been just amazed and edified listening to these. So the first one here we're going to bring you is the foundations of the five ways, magnusinstitute.org for more. Enjoy. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. We've been looking at the different ways in which God spoke to Abraham and to all of the great figures of Israel and how God then spoke in the person of Christ himself, various words of Christ we saw. And then we were moving to see how God spoke in creation. Now we could have. Um, made that move in 
a number of different ways. Uh, one principal way would have been to have gone through the uh, seven days in Genesis in detail. But again, that would have been God speaking uh, to Israel. So I chose that we uh, would begin by going into Aquinas. Everything is ready. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Do you still need the microphone? Well, uh, Walt isn't here, so I don't think so. (laughs) Can you hear me? Uh, If my voice drops, wave and tell me to speak up. (laughs) I thought it would be more profitable for us to look at the five ways of Aquinas. Now we could speak of them in another way, which would be more appropriate. Um, it's Aquinas's five ways of coming to understand God's essence. But everybody turns it into God's existence. And I spoke about the difficulty of that shift. That uh, is certainly, it's getting away from the way in which Aquinas himself speaks, but it also has very great uh, ramifications in the uh, difference of what is revealed concerning God. And that is important because. Ah, uh, you see, sacred doctrine, which most readers and writers on Aquinas shift to theology, but uh, that's again to misread Aquinas's text. He spends the first question with ten articles on the nature of sacred doctrine. And uh, you remember I spoke to you about uh, doctrine as being a verbal noun, a noun that speaks to a substantial form of being, but uh, the, uh, it also means not only the truth that is taught, but the way it is taught. And so to shift it from sacred doctrine, which is God teaching us his truth, to theology, which is an activity of our mind. See, so it's a shift then from our being focused onto and into God to a high and worthwhile activity, but an activity that is more focused on us and our activities rather than on God the truth himself revealing himself to us. The same point again concerning sacred doctrine. Aquinas in the, uh, I think it's Article 6 of the first question, Mm -hmm. talks about 
sacred doctrine. What is sacred doctrine? This is Aquinas's language in in the Latin. Quad notum est sibi soli de se ipso. I think it's worthwhile for you to uh, become familiar with the Latin. I had some football fans. Um, work on a question for me. How many technical terms would you need to understand any football game going on? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'd like to... Zebra. <laughs> for me. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I know the name football. <laughs> but... Uh, <clears throat> When you think of the the number of players, and that has to be doubled because of the two teams and all the substitutes, and then all the different kinds of coaches and ball boys or whatever, and the administration, and you, you also have to know uh, all the different shifting plays and everything. So one person came up with 600 terms. <laughs> 600 terms. Now, a very, very knowledgeable expert in Aquinas said, the amount of Latin that you need to read Aquinas is not the Latin that you need to read Cicero. He says, basically Aquinas's Latin vocabulary is 600 words. And the syntax is the way the words are put together as sentences. They're very straightforward. Um, uh, but then somebody else uh, came up with the um, figure that uh, somewhere around 1,500 words to be able to follow, uh, if you're a real fan, to follow a, a football game. So I think it's worthwhile to at least, at least be familiar with uh, some of Aquinas' language. Oh, sorry. I'm jumping. Quad notum est. What is known to God to himself, to himself alone, solely, concerning day, concerning se ipso. <laughs> now, in Aquinas's Latin style, this is quite unusual. It's quite unusual in the insistence, the huge emphasis that what, where sacred doctrine begins is with God knowing himself, what is known to God himself, and known only to him concerning his very self. 
Now you see how that focuses us into God. We're getting into the knowledge which is only known to him and which certainly concerns himself. <laughs> this seipsa is, of course, two English words. And in English, there would be the first uh, the first level of translation would be concerning his 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 self self say referring to self and ipsa ipso rather as uh, self. <laughs> but you see, in the Latin, the say ipso doesn't refer to self. <clears throat> if I'm going to drop my hand, what is it hitting? It's hitting the very table itself. That, this table, and in its in its very strong presence. No element of consciousness or self-knowledge or anything. The self-knowledge is here. Sibi, what is known to himself. Now you see, unfortunately in English, uh, we're so accustomed to saying self with everything. So the more literal translation would be what is known to him uh, or to the very him that he is. You see, in some ways, they're demonstratives. They're always pointing to this being and the way that this being is. How important is this? Not only for Aquinas, but you see, it's becoming very important through his language to understand what God understands ab about his own veriness. Let's take an, uh, a very important example from uh, St. John's Gospel. And I think the first time we come across the use, it's uh, with uh, St. John the Baptist. And when he says, there is the Lamb of God, in roughly in the Greek, well, he's using the Greek word, ikonos, that one walking there, that one is the Lamb of God. You see, it's always pointing out amongst all of the surrounding existing beings, the young men, John and the others, who are interrogating John the Baptist. You see, it's always pointing out the, the, the distinguished one. This one is distinguished from everybody else. So you see where 
it's a, a whole orientation of our uh, body and soul. Now, I'm going to have you all say, look at this. Look at this. But you see, you didn't shift, but everybody else's eyes went there. You see where it calls for a whole intellectual, physical shifting of your being from all the other beings around to focus into this being. Uh, so you see, it's, it's a way already of orienting uh, our acts of contemplation concerning God. Now, sacred doctrine is the truth, knowing the truth, only knowing the truth and the truth that concerns his very veryness. You see, in some ways, to say concerning his very veryness is like the Greek word ikonos, that one and no other one. Uh, you see, in some ways, initially, it's a call to uh, asceticism or stripping of our being. That is, it's a call to get away from everything around us that would distract us and all of the chatter that's always going on in our head and sort of get rid of all of those or penetrate through them to God sibi soli de se ipso. You see the enormous call to God first and doesn't really speak of other things yet. <laughs> in this way, Aquinas is not really saying anything that Christ didn't say. Didn't Christ say, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek God first. And then what does Christ say after that? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all other things will be added on to you. So you see, it's the first stage where we have to, let's say, be stripped of our personalities, our own concerns, our likes, our fears, our hesitations, doubts, or anything of that sort. And this is what Aquinas is doing with the five ways. How God, with the knowledge that he is to himself, the truth that he is to himself and to himself alone concerning his very veriness of being, um, we can begin to see that through created beings. Now, 
St. Paul says the same thing. <clears throat> and I've gone blank. <laughs> uh, the, uh, ah, yes. Through all of the, uh, our intellect, through all of the things that have been created, enable us to begin to know God's power and his divinity. So this is what we're investigating. Any repetition or any questions? If you want me to amplify any point or repeat, uh, well, let's then come back to the text. <laughs> I've spoken about, uh, and to the third it is thus proceeded, and the then the statement of the question for the article. It is to be seen that God not be. Now, the statement of the question is either in a negative form or a positive form. And some, whether it's in the negative or the positive can sometimes have important consequences. But it, here, the statement of the question in the negative form, that it is to be seen that God not be, is supporting the first two positions that Aquinas presents to any reader's mind. Um, I'm going to just give you a rough translation of the first one. We'll be spending some time on these. Um, because if one contrary would be infinite, the other would be totally destroyed. Let me, there's a major premise. It's a major proposition. It actually becomes a premise in a syllogism. But so far, it's just a, a statement that is made by some thinker that if one contrary would be infinite, the other contrary would be totally destroyed. What would a contrary be? Well, appropriately, hot and cold. If, if the heat were infinite, that is, filling all being, would there be any place for there to be coldness? There couldn't be. And one can reverse that. If coldness were infinite, there wouldn't be any place, room, for heat. <laughs> um, good and bad, um, white and black, whatever, contraries. 
justice, injustice, beauty, ugliness, and that. <clears throat> now, everyone would, given the understanding of the terms, agree with this proposition. <clears throat> uh, but this is understood in the, the, the name God. <clears throat> Namely, that he is a certain infinite good. So if he is the infinite good, like the infinite heat, then really, what's implied? There's no room for any other being who uh, couldn't be infinite, couldn't be. <clears throat> if their God would be, that is the infinite good, we would not know uh, no evil would be able to be found. So, goodness, infinite goodness, no room for evil or absence of good that should be there. <clears throat> Therefore, God is not. Now, you see... <clears throat> The, uh, the statements, the propositions have been turned into a syllogism. If this and if this, then that. Because there is evil, therefore God is not. Because there is evil, then God is not. The, the reversal, precisely. And, how common that is today. How can God, if he's supposed to be so good, allow this to happen? Uh, isn't that a major hit against uh, God and any form of religious service of him? Uh, the, uh, but now... Uh, I've been seeing nods and Jonathan's statement and things like that. So I think the uh, the position as expressed uh, is a reasonable one. But notice it's always in terms of if. If this, then that. Which really speaks to the forms of different syllogisms. Specifically, here called a conditional syllogism. It's based on the condition of if. <clears throat> but now you see the position that is being presented syllogistically is being presented in the highest uh, form of reasoning that man is capable of. So it's a position it's on the basis of the if. It's a reasonable position, and it's expressed in a very reasonable and compelling form. 
If you agree to this and to this, then you must agree to this. <clears throat> so the... <clears throat> now... <clears throat> well, since we did so well with the first one, let's go on to the second one. <clears throat> it's a little bit longer. Uh, but uh, for this... Uh, article. There are only two positions. <laughs> Usually there are three, if not four. In some other works of Aquinas, uh, some of them are called disputed questions, he might have 22 reasonable positions that he has to speak to. Uh, to elaborate that a little bit, uh, Aquinas, like Bonaventure or some of the others, as professors in the university, had to, a number of times of the year, um, put a question out to the whole university, and anybody in the university could present a position, either favoring it or denying it. And so, in a public act of a professorship, somebody like Aquinas would have to be in front of any number of the university that wanted to come, and he would then have to speak to the question, and then speak to the 22 positions. So, an enormous... It was all being taken down in uh, st stenography. But uh, he had three or four days to edit that, and then he had to publish it publicly for the university. How many professors would be able to do that these days? Uh, so many professors, if they're asked a question outside of their doctoral work, or nobody I've known uh, working men who did better. <laughs> As a little piece of evidence, a former professor from St. Mary's, a very, very talented fellow, uh, left St. Mary's and went to teach in Riverside, UC, uh, uh, University of California, Riverside. And I was once asked, I said, what is conversation like amongst your fellow professors? He said, to get a decent conversation, I go to a, a, a truck stop diner and I talk with the truck drivers. I get better discussions with them than I can get from my fellow professors. Uh, the professors are so limited in their doctoral work, they will know that field enormously well, but they don't really know anything outside of it. Another example, <laughs> I may have spoken about this before. There was a professor at the University of Chicago. His name was Richard McKeon, and he was... Uh, 
he was known all around the world in the philosophical and a good part of the theological uh, group of the scholars. And a, a, a zealous student of many, many different fields. You could talk to him about poetry, <clears throat> mathematics, chemistry, philosophy. Just enormous mind. And uh, he died, uh, and uh, I went to the funeral, and I was staying in his home uh, with uh, parts of the family. And at uh, dinner one night, I was seated in between Richard's son, Michael, and Michael's wife. I've forgotten her first name. And we were talking back and forth, and it turned out, uh, I hadn't known this, that uh, they were both professors in the English department at Brown University. Now, if you're going to think in terms of universities, that ranks pretty high. And they were both in the same department. I was impressed by that. And I said, oh, well, you know, it really must be worthwhile that when you get home, you can talk, uh, you have something in common to talk about. And she says, no points at him and says, he's a specialist in Alexander Pope. I specialize in the late Victorian novel. We never speak about literature to each other. <laughs> and here, they're burying the father and the father-in-law, who some people used to call Mr. Liberal Arts, because his mind ranged over so much. Uh, but uh, the, uh, well, I forget how I got on that. So the, the second position, furthermore, so the second position is coming as a further affirmation of the first position. <clears throat> what can be completed through fewer principles uh, is not to be done through many. Um, the uh, well, what can be done through fewer will be better, it's implied, than what has to be done through many principles. <clears throat> but it is to be seen that everything that appears in the world can be completed through other principles, supposing that God not be. So you see, everybody is explaining what is in the world through a single um, principle, God. But if God doesn't exist and we're looking for uh, principles of explanation, then there are two possibilities. The uh, natural principles and what are, what come from a human decision. So, 
the position the position is looking for an explanation of the beings of this world and it says there are ways of explaining what is in this world without having recourse to god himself the we can look through what is explained by nature and by human decision um, therefore there is no necessity to posit that god be because everything can be explained without him and isn't that the characteristic of so much of modern the mind of modern scientists or so many of the educators in the so-called colleges and universities, that everything here can be explained by everything here. But if you're explaining this by this, and this, expla- this is explained by that, where are you going to end? So if, if this first being is explained by its second being, the second being is explained by a third being here, and so then the ninth is explained by the tenth, the ninety-ninth is explained by the hundredth, the ninety-nine hundredth is explained by the thousandth, the millions into the trillions. Where do you end? So if if this is explained by this, and this is explained by this, and my third finger is explained by my fourth finger, and this is explained by that. If you don't have an explanation that's coming down the line, nothing's going to explain anything. Look at the discussions that are still going on after the enormous, enormous developments in various forms of mathematics, from, let's say from the time of Descartes onward, Leibniz and others. Um, <clears throat> look at the enormous developments that there have been in physics. Look at the enormous developments that there have been in biology, you know, cellular biology. Plant biology, vertebrate, enormous, enormous developments. Look at the use of the development of mathematics and physics, physics concerning weight and movement and everything of that sort. That with the mathematics available, the NASA engineers are able to send. Uh, uh, what do you call a rover. A, a rover when it gets to a planet but I'm thinking the ones that let's say will go around a the satellite. moon a sa- satellite let's use that term uh, they can send these huge machines up and uh, you know and they land where they're supposed to land so enormous, enormous developments. But at the same time, with all of these developments, 
there is a major form of physics that is based on what is called the principle of uncertainty. So when the human mind is getting down there into the sub-sub aspects of the um, the atom, that there is a principle of indeterminacy that is revealed. And it may be through the presence of the human mind to the subparticles moving around in the atom. So that's one form of physics. So that is sort of calling everything into question. In physics, there is the huge, huge debate that has been exacerbated in recent decades. Huge debate on whether light is a set of particles moving, or if it's a wave. See, particles, there's some element of discontinuity in between the particles. This particle is not this particle. But if it's a wave, there is continuity. So if one of the basic aspects of the whole universe is light, is it separate particles, or is it something continuous? So there there are ongoing discussions on that uh, everywhere, complicated by something in the last 20 years that uh, some physicists say that um, I think it was Eddington's calculation of the speed of light, which is basic to any physics, was wrong. So in a sense, that's calling most of the physics into uh, um, question. But still, nevertheless, there's been enormous progress. Unfortunately, at the time of Darwin, who I'm going to describe in a very important term, Darwin, for all of the work that he did, and he did an enormous amount of work, and some important things, was basically a waffler. He couldn't make up his mind about things. He was inclining in this direction. (laughs) Ultimately, what is called... uh, in the four or five major forms of Darwinism um, are considered to be atheistic. You don't need God to explain the world. What explains the world is the evolution of species one into another species. For which, if you read the literature and you read the scientists themselves, there is no evidence whatsoever of a change of one species into another species. There are different shapes and forms and everything, but each species is basically itself. (laughs) The calculations in terms of probability theory in mathematics that a species with all of its constituent aspects 
would evolve from this to that, given the amount of time for there to be even a shift within a cell, because they're able to measure that now through mathematics. The amount of time that it takes for this cell to modify itself, they can calculate that in terms of nanoseconds. Well, that's extraordinary. But if you're going to calculate, and I've read one study, um, they were studying 119 chromosomes of one cell. Now, there are a good number of other aspects to the cell besides the number of chromosomes. If the chromosomes were able to interact and change themselves into a new form of protein, that would take more time than the universe has existed. So what does that do to evolutionary theories? There are a lot of important and worthwhile things that can be explained through a principle of adaptation. But not everything can be explained by adaptation. But the, you see, the... At the time of Darwin, in trying to explain everything, Darwin was explaining so much by the existing beings that were found in different parts of the world, in England, in the Galapagos Islands, or wherever, birds or fish or whatever. He was explaining an awful lot. <laughs> But there was another man by the name of Huxley who took over Darwin's work and said, uh, because Darwin still had remnants of a belief, a knowledge of God, says, you see, Darwin is explaining this by this in the existing world. We don't need God. So Huxley was the one who turned Darwinism into atheism. Um, unfortunately, Darwin didn't either realize what Huxley was doing or uh, he didn't understand what Huxley was doing. But you see, there's so much in the mentality of so many people that uh, I can get by without God. Now, one of the things that the five ways of Aquinas is going to show us is there is no aspect, there's no aspect of our being in movement, let's say the way I'm moving my hands and the way I'm moving my tongue and lungs and air, or my mind, or I'm willing to talk about this and I'm not talking about that. Every aspect of our being, and every aspect of every other being cannot be understood without the presence and activity 
of a being that is to be called God. <laughs> Any repetition? The same point, in a slightly different way to make a bit of an advance. The two initial positions are saying everything can be explained without uh, depending on God. So, if you have a world that explains itself and has no need, no dependence on God, because he doesn't exist, what do we, as Catholics, understand that world to be? If there is a world with a God, without a God, what is the name that we give to such a place? Hell. Hell. Precisely. Precisely. What are the, each of the two positions is, in a sense, defending is that the world is basically hell. There is a very prominent uh, sort of contemporary theologian, though he's dead. Uh, I think he died in 78. Hans Urs von Balthasar. Enormous mind. And what he knew and what he didn't know. But he held this position, which most of his readers don't get. <laughs> if we look at the life that we're living right now, the, the six of us, if this were infinitely extended, if it went on without end, what would you want to call it? Um, Baldazar said, this life, infinitely extended, or this life without end, is really hell, begun. Unfortunately, uh, God the Father sent his Son to save us through his suffering and death, and through the sacraments, particularly of baptism, confirmation in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Eucharist, enables us to begin in cooperation with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In cooperation with them, we can turn this temporary hell into permanent beatitude with God himself. So the, you see, the cruciality, the crux, the cross, that the, these objections are presenting um, and arguing in a preeminently human way, um, arguing syllogistically, because it's the syllogistic operation of our mind 
that constitutes us as the rational animal, the reasoning animal. <laughs> a, a confirmation of this through one of the saints. Because the, uh, the saints, particularly some of them have an awful lot of us, an awful lot to teach us. The Curé d'Ars, St. John Marie Vianney, was really or, only ordained to the priesthood because his uncle, who was a very prominent uh, parish priest, a monsignor, and a major advisor to the bishop of Ars, the diocese, um, more or less forced the bishop to ordain, uh, pressured the bishop to ordain his nephew. But the bishop was wise enough, seeing that uh, the cure really wasn't up to too many accomplishments, sent him to a God-abandoned village called Ars. And <laughs> Well, the young curé was looking for holiness and devoting himself to as much prayer as he could and whatever his capacities would allow him to undertake. And if you read his sermons to his people that have been written down, you can see that he's struggling putting this sentence together with that sentence and whatnot. When he gets there, there are about five or six women from the village who come to Mass. Well, later on, after people got to know him, there were special trains coming down from the north of France, from Germany, up from Italy, to come to ours. So, in hopes that he, the curé, would hear their confession because he was given a very great and I think very burdensome uh, gift of being able to read other people's souls. Uh, how many of you know uh, Father Pio, the, uh, the Capuchin priest in Italy, the stigmatist uh, in any case? He also was given the gift of being able to uh, read souls. Uh, an example concerning both of them. Somebody would confess their sins, and the confessor would say, is that all? Yes, yes, that's all. What about the time that you were doing this? Oh. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, at one point, the curé prayed to God that instead of looking into other people's souls, he could see his own soul. Well, God allowed him to see his own soul. And he was so frightened by whatever he saw that he said to someone, I will never pray for that again. <laughs> the secret little connivances and excuses that we make to sort of 
compromise our way through things. But you see where it's a form of uh, when you really get to see what's down in there, it's not too good. In a very, very curious way, Freud did the same thing with his, I'm going to say, supposed descent into the hell. You know that he, he lied, he fabricated his cases that he was basing all his work on. It's been shown now a number of times by very important books. <laughs> but uh, you see, one of the things he did, Freud did, was he established what some people would call a principle of suspicion. That since we think on a reasonable level that we're doing this because of goodness and love of neighbor or because it's worthwhile or whatever, that deep down in our soul we're really being moved by sexual appetites. So the reduction of everything of the human mind down to this very hidden source of the sexual appetites and actually the cases that he was concerned with were abnormal uh, sexual appetites. You see, it calls everything of the mind that might be good and worthwhile and noble into the suspicion of being low and evil and uh, unworthy. Um, but at least um, he was indicating that there was some sort of depth to the soul, however wrong he was. If you compare him to somebody like Nietzsche, who scarcely gets to the depths of the soul, except maybe in a different direction than Freud, Nietzsche really wants power, strength, to dominate the others. You know, the, the word that is used to describe the true human for Nietzsche is the superman, the ubermensch, the man who's over the others, the dominator, the tyrant. Uh, but you see where these two positions uh, vibrate with what is going on. <clears throat> Let me give you another example. <clears throat> it's from the Desert Fathers, the uh, men and women who fled uh, Alexandria in Egypt to get away from all of the horrors of the urban life lived basically on the level of various mythologies. And going out into the desert, where in that, this isolation, in this life of being stripped down from all distractions, in order to, in order to concentrate on God in his very veriness, they went out to fight the devil on his deathly territory, the desert, and to bring Christ's victory into the place of death. 
So a young aspirant monk is sitting with his elder, and uh, they're sitting at the door of the elder's uh, hut way out in the desert, and it's getting towards dusk. And uh, the young monk has opened up his mind and soul to the elder, so the elder can direct him uh, more truthfully. And at a certain point, the young monk is utterly, utterly indiscreet. He inquires of the older monk, but what is going on inside of you? And that was a huge, huge intrusion into the older monk's life. The older monk turned to the young aspirant monk and said, I would not dare to begin to tell you what is going on in me. So you see the constant spiritual warfare that is going on all the time. Now, in some Catholic uh, circles, the spiritual warfare is, is, is known and important, not known enough. Uh, I think the people who are doing it um, um, see it, the spiritual warfare, us good guys against those bad guys. They don't see that the spiritual warfare is also going on inside each one of us. Uh, the great warning of Augustine to uh, the people who want to clear the, uh, the field of the church of all the weeds so we will only grow nourishing grain. And Augustine's answer is, no, you can't do that. Because in pulling up the weed, um, you may be pulling up good growths. Uh, you can't separate the, the tares, T-A-R-E-S, the weed seeds, from the nourishing grain seeds. We have to accept and tolerate the these. And he goes on further to say, there are some in the church now, there are some in the church now who will end outside the church, and there are people now outside the church who will end inside the church. And ultimately, who is to know except God himself? Um, <clears throat> one last story, and then we'll stop for today. <clears throat> Two stories. Um, an older monk is saying his uh, psalms, and a young man suddenly appears in front of him, a, a young man, uh, maybe late teens or something like that, but they were somewhere there. And uh, the young man says to the older monk, give me a word, really, what uh, that was understood to be in those days was, give me a word to live by. So the older monk goes to the first psalm and reads off uh, the beginning of the first psalm. Blessed is he who walks not in the, 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 the path of sinners, nor stands in the uh, uh, counsel 
of the wicked, nor sits with the scoffers at the gate, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, which he meditates upon day and night. And so the monk looks up, young man's gone. So he lives on, the older monk lives on, and 20 years later, the young man appears, and the older monk says to him, Where have you been? What have you been doing? Oh, I went to put into practice the word that you gave. 20 years on the first verse of that psalm, which in some ways is the introduction, in some ways the summary, not only of all the psalms, but everything up to the book of Revelations, is like a tree planted by living water. And trees planted by living water are some of the most important aspects of the heavenly Jerusalem, where the marriage supper of the Lamb with his bride, the Christ, his bride, the church, is eternally taking place. I think that's a serious lesson to us. Um, with the last story. <laughs> there aren't too many women spoken of as living out in the desert. But there is a Dorothea. There's just a very short entry. <clears throat> and she was renowned for having lived in her cave uh, up in Awadia a Canyon. She was renowned for having lived in her cave without looking out the window for 37 years. And when you start examining the question, the, the statement, it poses a little bit of problems. <laughs> Where was she getting her food from? Where was she getting her water from? What was she doing with her bodily functions? Uh, the, uh, somebody must have been bringing her food and water and things of this sort. So what did it mean that she didn't look at the window for 37 years? I think the greatness of it is that she was so centered into God that she couldn't turn away from God to look out the window. And the, if they talk about centering prayer, it's all amateur sort of. Well, there's something, at least they're pointing to something that's worthwhile. But uh, the way they, they're turning it into a, a psychological exercise. It's you know, like the Carthusians. A young man show, or a young woman shows up at a charter house and they're immediately introduced into their cell, which is a, let's say, a full two-story house usually. And they're introduced into the cell. I remember when I was uh, at one, uh, I said to the novice master, now when will we be meeting? And he looked at me and said, meeting, meeting? He said, you have the, the Bible? And he was implying then all the church offices and everything. Um, 
and you have the Holy Spirit. You know, and he left it there, meaning, why should we be meeting? So the Carthusians have a statement. You're introduced into the loneliness of the cell, and uh, you must find God there or get out. Um, and I think that we're all called to do that one way or another. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all other things will be added on to you. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.